Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Jenny Wren. I've been a festival booker for over 15 years. Mom of two, four if you count the dogs. I've buried my sister and my parents, partied like it was 1999 for over 20 years, modeled for five minutes, worn far too many accessories and not enough self-care. I've had breast cancer and epiphanies. Safe to say, she's been around. You're listening to Hindsight Conversations, where my guests are invited to bring to the table what it is they want to discuss, feel ready to share from where they are in their lives. We meet it together with no agenda. No topic is off limits, from the frivolous to the profound, the gnarly to the joyful, painful to the practical. Red flag moments you can only see when looking back, but looking back to move forward. Join me weekly where we explore the 2020 vision of hindsight. Everyone has it. This week's guest is Tony Walsh, archivist, journalist and activist. Tony has been at the forefront of LGBT civil rights on the island of Ireland since 1979. He cut his teeth as a journalist at Out Magazine, Ireland's first commercial gay periodical in 1988. He co-founded GCN Magazine. In 1997, he recognized the archive holdings of the National LGBT Federation into what would later become known as the Irish Queer Archive. The collection was transferred to state ownership in 2008. He recently launched a campaign to build an Irish AIDS memorial. The campaign is currently at community consultation stage and has the support of local government and Leinster House. Tony recently moved to Turkey to further his research and writing projects. And this is where we meet, where Tony discusses some very personal stories. Thinking about what hindsight means and how I could apply it to how I apply it to one big instance that looms large in my recent history. So we're talking about 2005. Now, some of this is actually when I think back to it, actually, I feel some of it is. It is a mad mix of chaos and fun and sadness and grief and anger. There's a whole panel of emotion, human emotions is going on here. Um, uh, so about 2005, I was 45, 
and I had just finished a significant relationship, come out of a significant relationship. And I was a bit of a walking cliche, really, when I think back now. I'm not sure what my self-awareness was like at the time, because, you know, you're consumed with, you know, the, the flotsam and jetsam of a, a relationship breakup. But um, I, I do remember actually going out and doing, carousing a lot, doing a lot of boozing, doing a lot of drugs, and uh, getting the ride, left, right, and center. <laughs> and one night, one night I was going home from Pod's dance club. Now there was actually, this is 2005, and there was still an issue with taxis, late night taxis in Dublin. Because I remember thinking, I couldn't get a taxi, and I was living in Pernod Street, Great Gap, and um, the Chinatown end. And um, uh, I decided to leave my record box in pause, which was too heavy to take home. And I sauntered home. Now I'd been DJing the chocolate bar. Friday night, and I'd say I was a little bit ripped, probably stoned, and uh, there might have been some other consumables as well. Definitely stoned. I mean, I don't smoke anymore, but certainly then. And um, I walked home, and when I'm coming up to the Gresham Hotel, this is like half four or five o'clock in the morning, I see this guy on the steps of the hotel having a cigarette and he's giving me the eye. And I remember thinking, God, getting this sort of frisson of excitement came over me. I thought, I haven't been cruised in years, years and years and years and years, since my 20s or whatever, anyway, a long time. And um, as I was getting closer. So anyway, we make smile contact and the as I'm approaching the hotel, he steps off the, um, the, the front and saunters up um, saunters up O'Connor Street and turns around the corner onto um, Cahabrua Street. And very measured pace, and I follow him around. I mean, that's where I'm going, I'm going home. And um, I turn around the corner, and then I see him ducking down into the lane behind Gresham Hotel. Okay. Um, and by the time I get to the top of the lane, I'm looking down the gloom, and I see him skulking in a doorway that's either the back of the Gresham or it's the Savoy or somewhere like that. Anyway, I just sort of really, my curiosity's peaked. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and um, I go down and um, when I pull up to him, he's having a wank. Lovely. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we, he wants to have sex with me then and there and I'm just not re really keen because it's like, 
November, December. It was cold. It was uncomfortable. You know, I thought, oh, fuck this. So I basically, I invited him home because I only just lived 100 meters. Around the corner. Yeah. So brought him home and we had really good sex. It was fun. And then uh, I'd say there was probably some more weed involved. And um, anyway, I uh, at some point I knocked myself out. And when I woke up, I actually found that he was inside me and he wasn't using a condom. Oh, God. Okay. Now, I'm, I'm, the reason I'm going into all of this detail is I think the detail is really important to sort of explain the range of emotions that sort of hit me later on. Okay. Yes. Uh, I'm not trying to sort of like be salacious or anything else, but it's just important that sort of, of detail that, that we sort of have some understanding of yeah. like how things unfolded. Yeah. Um, so what started off as consensual sex ended up becoming very problematic. And when I came through, I, well, I just realized something wasn't right. I, I'm, I mean, it was quite clear he wasn't using condom. And it was a very messy scene. And... Um, was he aggressive? Do you mind me asking? No, no. nothing like that at no. all. Nothing no. like that at all. It was just all so easy. Okay. But uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Uncomfortable physically and also uncomfortable psychoemotionally. And we cleaned ourselves up and then he said was getting a flight back to this, an Irish guy was getting a flight back to the States uh, the next day, so we said, and he had to go back to the hotel. Um, so he left me. Now this is, we'd been there an hour or two, I don't know, a couple of hours. It's, it's getting bright, so it must have been yeah, a few hours. And um, he goes back to the hotel and I sort of clean up the bedroom, make myself a cup of tea, have a little bit of a cry. And in that moment, I realized that he probably infected me. Wow. With either HIV or hepatitis. I saw it just this, I don't know what it was, but just this penetrating realization that something awful had happened. It happened. Wow. Really, really hit me. Um, and if you ask me, well, was there something specific to suggest why that, that mm-hmm. was the case? I, I, I can't answer that. I just knew something wasn't right. Um, and um, uh, I went to bed. For a long story short, a few weeks later, I don't know how long, I got really ill. And basically, I was zero converting. Uh, and I got really, really ill. Uh, I knew instantly that it was either hepatitis or HIV because their epidemiology is quite similar. Now, you have to also understand, Jenny, that I've like uh, both looked after individuals who've um, were in the later throes of HIV or uh, uh, full-blown AIDS, 
and a very familiar a lifetime of experience of, of, of the epidemiology of HIV and some of the opportunistic infections that went with it, because it lived through yeah. the AIDS pandemic. Um, so with an awful sense of for, uh, foreboding, I went up to, uh, got an appointment, went up to the Guy Clinic in St. James' Hospital, and we do the bloods, and then they called me back in those days. Now, this is only 2015, so what's that like? Not that long ago. ago, yeah. It doesn't seem like that long ago. But I'm thinking back now, and there's a whole load of things that's just so wrong about all this story. Um, uh, they call me back, and they get, and um, confirmed that, I've, um, that I was uh, HIV positive. And... I remember having just a quiet internal breakdown and thinking, fuck, 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 fuck. This is a Friday. And they asked me to go and see a counselor. And I had to sit through this really charming woman who's asking me a whole lot of questions and being very attentive and enabling and all I could keep thinking was I want to get the fuck out of here and just go home and um, both annoyed with myself and also resigned to reality now where the hindsight involves in all of this is well first of all (laughs) I've been told since that um, medics would never give you a HIV diagnosis the last thing on a Friday afternoon. On a Friday? Oh my God, yeah. I can. Ah, because actually it's just so deadening for some people that in fact um, they there's would be a worry that somebody's left on their own. Mm-hmm. And in fact, normally if they know that you're getting, uh, getting a diagnosis, a positive diagnosis, they recommend that somebody actually come with you and you talk to somebody about it. Which tells you an awful lot about the culture of fear, shame and stigma that still lingers around HIV diagnosis. Because of course you don't have that if you, okay, getting a positive committee diagnosis is an awful thing, especially if you're a woman and with the potential to be uh, become infertile. But, you know, all the rest of the bullshit, box standard STIs, it's like, yeah, okay, give me the pills and I'm sorted and whatever, yeah. you know, and then we can move on. But I remember going home and for weeks, actually, I could say for a long time, for almost a decade, certainly all the time that my mother was alive, because I was actually... A year or two later, I left Dublin and I moved back to Clamel to look after my mother, really full-time care to my mother. And my mother was aware I was HIV positive, but I never told her how I became positive. Now, the thing is, like, it's irrelevant how you become, become infected, you know, it's, and it's, in fact, it's extraordinarily invasive of anyone to sort of even um, uh, ask the question, you know, accidents happening. Yeah. It's like asking the question, how did you, be, how did you, how did you become accidentally pregnant? You know, it's just like, <laughs> exactly. it's just a no-no. Um, but it's, you know, in my case, it just, it was just so, it was so messy and so compromised and, and it induced uh, a range of emotions that sort of 
um, waxed and waned mm. over the years until I finally managed to sort of like um, deal with it. I suppose actually writing about it from my one-man show two years ago okay. was really helped me sort of put some closure on it or certainly make some sense of it. It took me a long time to shake off the feeling that like I should have known better. Yeah, I hear a lot or of self-blame. I could have done, yeah. Or I could have done something to avoid this. Now, now I'm, while, while I'm saying this to you, I'm tiptoeing around the incident in the full knowledge that, you know, um, blame is, is, seems to be an intrinsic part of... Um, blame seems to be an intrinsic part of um, rape uh, narratives. Mm-hmm. Um, and... There was undoubtedly a lot of that going on. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember sort of saying to myself, well, for, <laughs> this is, in fact, the blame game is like uh, multifaceted here. There was, there was guilt at uh, uh, putting myself, allowing myself to be, put myself in, the, in that position in the first place. That I should have somehow foregone the ride at five o'clock in the morning. <laughs> And the instant gratification, you know, uh, there was regret, remorse at being stoned, at negotiating intimacy and desire four or five o'clock in the morning when my sort of, uh, all of my senses weren't fully sort of like functioning uh, and my, the choices I make were going to be, um, a little bit sort of skewered, I suppose. Inevitably, you know, if it's like it's early in the morning, you're not thinking straight and your senses are dulled by like having a couple more, too many blunts and whatever, some gin and tonics, whatever I was drinking at the time. So there was that. And then it was also the, um, a profound sense of, uh, guilt and anger at uh, at becoming HIV positive at the age of forty five. Okay. I mean, there's a twist of irony to this as well. You know, just sort of introduce another levity. So the the guilt and remorse at becoming positive at forty five at a time when I had come out of the AIDS pandemic Identic, and lost yeah. countless numbers of friends who never managed to get to the sort of the sweet spot that I found myself in post-1996 with the arrival of antiretroviral therapies. And so I became positive at the age of 45, and I'm, I'm um, lucky enough to be a recipient of so much phenomenal change in pharmaceutical um, technology. So I just take one pill a day, and then I can survive, you know? So there was like, but I still like... I just look back on that and it just, to me, it's just, it's masked. The whole incident is masked by a big, why? Yeah. How did I? How could I? (laughs) Why did that happen? If PEP had been available, I could have just run straight up to the hospital within 72 hours. Okay. It's like, you know, and got the equivalent of the morning after pill for HIV mm-hmm. and, and dealt with it. But it, that wasn't that wasn't the case. And I 
you know, when I sort of recall that period, it just, it's, my recollection of the period is just tinged with so much remorse and regret. Um, I should say, I don't spend my time sort of beating myself up around the head over it, you know, which don't. Good. <laughs> That's good. Um, yeah, I, I, I hear a lot of self, uh, self-blame for a situation that was not of your doing. So, um, obviously, I don't blame myself for being raped. You know, that's somebody else that was responsible for that. But I do, um, I do, I do regret not having, being in more control. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying this, saying this from the point of view of somebody who is actually a considerable control freak. I like being yeah. in control, you know, it's um, when I did recreational drugs in the past, I never liked, always liked that sweet spot. It's like a little bit like like drinking alcohol, which causes another neurotoxin, but you know, you get to a sweet spot where everything's sort of woozy and you know, you're... Floaty, but manageable. Floating but manageable, yeah. And you still have some measure of control. And I've always liked that. So yes, it's there's always been I've always sort of regretted not being fully in control. Mm-hmm. Um and it's it's there's a sort of double whammy at work here because it's not just about it's not just about having been raped it's about as i as i said i think actually what looms larger in the in the, the in in uh, this equation what looms larger is that sort of paradoxical um survivor's guilt yeah becoming infected at 45 you know and uh, kicking myself that i could allow that to happen especially in the context of somebody who's um I, I like to imagine that I've sort of been a, a lifetime advocate for safer sex. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then I end up becoming infected. <laughs> you know, when, when we're talking about this, I'm aware that, you know, I, I'm aware of the need to sort of tiptoe around this, um, these topics because they're so sh- shrouded in um, cultural moralizing there's so there's so much moralizing around around going out and having sex especially when you're on uh, when you're drinking and do you mean tiptoeing around it for yourself or just for the general you know for general public both i mean i think it's so easily it can be so easily misunderstood and yet, I, do you remember the, the, the Belfast rugby rape case yes. a few years ago? Yeah. I followed that avidly, and I have never cried so much mm-hmm. as I did when that when when that testimony uh, unfolded from that young woman. Because, and and I also cried over the fact that so many people uh, chose to dismiss her testimony. Mm-hmm. Uh, and try to devoice her um, because um, I just saw myself in that position. Yeah, it was just—it was so crystal clear to me. The, the, this, 
how it was so crystal clear to me how how something that starts off as being consensual and fun which fun. was yeah. yeah i mean i i i i picked up this guy in bizarre circumstances on the street decided i wanted some so i wanted the sex eternal fun home. yeah it started off as a fun, consensual thing and then slid into something very different, you know? Um, and um, I think unless, unless you've been in that situation or you know somebody who's been in that situation, I think it's difficult for a lot of people to imagine how, how quickly and easy it can happen. So I think a lot of people, more than they would perhaps like to admit, understand very clearly how the, the, that tiny moment that everything changes and become, you know, from consensual to, to not. Mm. And, and I, uh, on, on hearing what, you know, what I'm hearing is uh, like, do, do you feel, do you feel that you tiptoe around it for yourself that you were raped? Is that hard to? I can't do anything about. I can't do anything about that. Um, I suppose I'm just live with a. There's a sort of legacy of um, maybe anger is too strong the word, Jenny, but like um, annoyance. It's like a sort of. It's like an itch that I scratch from time to time. This annoyance that my I allowed my judgment to be cloud become clouded. Mm-hmm. Clouded by clouded because I got the horn. 
I clouded because I was I was blunted or whatever. You know, you could. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could pinpoint, pinpoint a couple of things. You know, I mean, that's the, <laughs> that's the great thing about bloody hindsight. You know, don't smoke that extra joint. Don't well, have that yeah. tonic. Yeah. <laughs> don't go down that dark lane. What did your grandmother say about walking into the forest and not leaving the path? <laughs> not leaving the path in the middle of the night. <laughs> Actually, as by Rhonda's subject, I used to call. I still refer to that lane as Gotham Alley. It's it's a really seedy, sleazy lane that goes down right down past the Gresh Motel, Savoy Cinema, and then the back of the Pro Cathedral. Okay. And it used to, and it used to. So it it runs parallel to O'Connell Street, mainly O'Connell Street Upper. And then it opens out into Parnell Street, almost near where Eamon Doyle, techno DJ and fabulous photographer, lived, who was, lives, who's one of my, or used to live, one of my neighbours, dear friend. Uh, and I always used to be fascinated by, uh, by um, the um, goings on in that Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I should have known better <laughs> to even even take one foot into that place. <laughs> A den of iniquity. <laughs> Did you or have you sought um, therapy? Have you looked at uh, how, how have you dealt with it? How have you um, by writing about it and okay. developing a scene from my one man show? Yeah. Which I, I got to see. My, well, I remember my consultant, Gronya Courtney, a fabulous woman who's been involved in the, at the forefront of um, sexual, sexual health in the Guy Clinic in, in St. James's Hospital in Dublin. Um, she um, was the first person who suggested a few years ago, and she was one of the few people who knew about it, actually, because I told no one. I told no one bar my ex-lover and one or two close friends. Where are you with it now? How are you feeling now? Um, ready to make fun of it, I suppose. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I actually think talking with you has helped enormously. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad of that. And and hindsight, because it is this, you know, my my idea with this podcast or with this concept is, you know, that sometimes we're told, oh, you're not supposed to look back, you're supposed to look forward. But for me, the past has clues and it has jigsaw pieces. And it, you know, I am always looking forward. I always want to go forward. I'm not somebody who dwells in the past, but that if we can pick up those jigsaw pieces or those clues and and help us create a more formed puzzle to go forward. Looking back now, aside from the emotions that you've you've talked about, what what are you sorry that you didn't give yourself at the time? Um Sorry, I suppose more time to process it initially, but it was it was the combination of a, a HIV positive diagnosis. I actually poured all of my that required all of my attention. Yeah. So yeah. in a way, I just and then 
not long after the HIV diagnosis, I I just my mother needed me, so I just I really actually in some ways you know I'm thinking I'm thinking out loud here now, Jenny, but mm-hmm. but it strikes me that it's sort of also this classic behaviour of lots of people in carers that we might have some enduring issues that we need to deal with ourselves. But when we find ourselves in a situation where somebody else is depending on us, and it can be a child, it can be an elderly disabled grandparent or whatever, a parent um, or a lover, or husband or wife, that in fact, um, we, a lot of the time, our own individual needs are sidelined because we just simply have to. And by the way, I'm not moralizing about this. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm not putting value on it. I'm just stating a fact. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That we, we tend to then, and certainly in my case, this is what happened. I just simply parked, parked my response to my response less to my HIV diagnosis. Cause I was like, you know, once I started taking my meds, like, okay, whatever, you know, there's more important things in the world to worry about, like getting heart disease or whatever, liver, liver failure, or, you know, lines on my forehead um but it was the um yes i definitely i i definitely parked the i didn't process the rape mm-hmm. i didn't process this initially i didn't process it for a long time um so yes if um if i had to go back that's what i would do mm. because it's it induced such a range of responses yeah anger (laughs) a lot of anger (laughs) a lot of anger and remorse Mm -hmm. um remorse at just simply you know as i said earlier on allowing it to happen or whatever else in inverted i'm saying that in inverted commas um so yeah i think if i'd dealt with it earlier i probably wouldn't I think it would have been much healthier to deal with it earlier. I don't believe I, and I, you know, it's also a, a classic illustration of that instance, classic illustration of me not taking my own medicine. Because I know when I'm in conversation with other friends, I will always say, deal with it now, deal with it now. Don't let it fester, you know, because it's, uh, I'm always prone to saying that secrets, there's a difference between secrets and privacy and secrets are not healthy okay, and secrets, yeah. secrets corrode, uh, secrets corrode one's mental health, one's, one's sense of self. Um, but in this situation, I just simply parked it uh, mm-hmm. for a while. So yes, um, if I had to go back, I would just simply um, ensure that that is dealt with in a sort of speedily manner and whatever that takes. You're talking more about people seeking some professional help. Um, I don't know what else I could have done, really, you know? This is it. And, you know, the other side of it is uh, when I look back at some of my processes or lack thereof, I've had to really try and, which is not easy for me, kind of pour some love onto it and go, maybe that was the process. Maybe the fact that you turned to look after your mother and that while you were doing that, it was that it's so big that we're not, you know, that we, we were doing maybe the best for ourselves. And that in just pressing pause and minding your mom allowed it to distill through your system in, in the way that it needed to, to, to do. 
you know? That's a really smart observation because I actually think when I say I parted, that's probably a wrong descriptor because, of course, in, inevitably, nothing just sort of sits there. No. You know, no. it's, it is, you're absolutely right. Things are filtering slowly, they're percolating. And there's no doubt that um, I'm sure I use that time subliminally, sort of like, you know, yeah. try and sort of process and make some sense of it. I also would say too, that I would be inclined, um, if I had to sort of go back again, I would be inclined to lay off the blunts. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe not lay off, lay, lay off the weed, but, but, but I have to say that like, when I look back on my life, I'm 60 years of age now, and when I look back on my life at some of the more problematic moments in my life and incidents that have created harm either to myself or to other people, they've invariably alcohol or weed. <laughs> alcohol has invariably been at the, at the root of those problematic moments. So yeah, I think I, I definitely learned a lesson. I'm not, I've never been a huge, um, a huge uh, drinker. I've, I've always preferred, I always preferred uh, recreational drugs like ecstasy and um, acid or whatever. Um, but uh, yeah, I think um, with a bit more hindsight, I would have been a lot more measured I'm saying that I'm saying that fully, fully cognizant and appreciative of the fact that I didn't cause this problem. I didn't cause the problem. Yeah. I'm fully, fully aware of that, and I understand it and I believe it. But at the same time, I also have to take I have to take I have to take a responsibility for my own behavior, having had one too many drinks. You know, whatever else that happens from that. You know, it's. You walk down the street after 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 sculling half a bottle of vodka and then fall and crack your head. Well, who's responsible for that? The pavement, bottle of vodka, drinking the bottle of vodka. Yeah, you know? but if somebody come came along comes along and rapes you while you're you know uh, oblivious, it is not your fault. No, 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 no. And 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 by the way, I don't want you to go away from this conversation no. imagining that, that I believe that for one minute. No, no, I know you don't. Uh, I'm only repeating it because I just want to, I, I, I still feel there's a, there's, I can almost sense there's still that like self just, oh, fuck, <laughs> <laughs> you know, within you. And, and I get it. I understand it. I like, you know, and it, and it, it's going to take time of just reminding yourself, you know, like that, that really wasn't my fault and sexual desire and all of those things that you've advocated for. I mean, that you were perfectly within your rights. And yet I can still hear that little like, oh, fuck it. You know, I know what I, but it, it wasn't your fault. And you were processing for many years and just some stuff is too big. I believe. You're mm here. -hmm. You know, some stuff is too big. Do you feel now you, you would like to speak about it more for others, for other, for younger men, for older men, for others who may need to also just speak out their stories? Definitely. I think we're, we're not having enough conversations around 
as I said earlier on, about how we negotiate desire and intimacy, or if we do, it's in the context, the conversations we have are limited to either birth control or limited to um, STI avoidance. Yeah. Um, but I think inevitably, especially if there's anything that might cloud decision-making, mm-hmm. like somebody is under a huge amount of stress or uh, they've um, partaken too much of of, uh, of um, substance, um, recreational substances, recreational drugs or alcohol, then yes, I think we, we need to have conversations about our duty of care, mm-hmm. our duty of care, not only to ourselves, but to the other person that we're engaging with. Our duty of concern to people who, whose um, judgment is skewered in these circumstances. I do put a huge value on um, occasions and platforms like, like this, the one we're, we're sharing right now. I mean, I think these platforms, exchanges of information uh, can be, and, you know, conversations of, of exchanges, just sharing one's lived experiences. It has, it has enormous value. Um, and I just think that's enough for the moment. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Uh, I agree. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of relieved and glad to hear you say that because I was like, oh God, if he's going to start telling me now he's launching, uh, <laughs> it's like, no, no, I'm very glad to hear your beautiful man and your self-care and that it is enough and it, it, not even enough, Tony, I would go as far as to say it's a lot actually to have this conversation and to, to vocalize this this that has happened to you it's it's far more than enough it's it's actually a lot um and well done and thank you and i i feel always I, i'm a, i'm a massive believer in the, the power of conversation and the power of honesty and and vulnerability um so it is far more than um yeah you, you've already done a lot right now but I was, as I said, so glad to hear the words self-care and you're a beautiful man and he's taking care of you. And that, there's, there's, that already sounds like healing because to allow somebody in to do that, I think, is, is also I, beautiful, you know. Did I also mention that it's spring and it's 26 degrees <laughs> at the moment? <laughs> no, you might have noticed I didn't ask you what the weather was like over there. <laughs> I don't want to know. What are you sorry you didn't give up earlier? Oh, that's easy to answer. Cigarettes. Cigarettes. Okay. What are you sorry you didn't start earlier? Um, Credit union savings. This has been brought to you by the credit union. <laughs> Tony is now. I am a major flag waiver for the credit union. <laughs> and in hindsight, what are you most proud of to date? Um, that's probably easy to answer. Um, setting up GCN, which almost contributed to relationship I had at the time breaking up. <laughs> Um, and was very fraught 
I was in my late 20s, but seeing what uh, it's become, one of the oldest uh, LGBT community publishing ventures in the world, uh, a great success and a, a reservoir of enormous talent, voices, opinion, expertise. So yeah, probably GCN. I would have to say bravo to that, absolutely. Um, and what might be, and we, we may not have gotten there yet, but from, from where you, from day one to age 60, what was the happiest part of your life? There's never one sort of moment where I can, I'm happiest day is right now, I suppose, living. Great, yeah. yeah, yeah, being alive. Right now, being alive. Um, I do actually, Jenny, I do have, have take moments, you know, I'm, I'm an atheist, but I have moments that I suppose are akin to praying um, or meditation where I just sort of try to denoise myself a little bit and just, Acknowledge, <clears throat> acknowledge, um, acknowledge the place I find myself in, mm -hmm. and also acknowledge my gratefulness for just being in the situations I'm in. And I think that's a sort of progressive, continuous process. Um, you know, just being alive, being healthy, being surrounded by friends who love me. I just feel privileged to, I feel privileged to have grown up being loved, you know, I really, I think it's, it's the thing that I, this is the thing that, that gives me a great sense of wonder and delight. Mm. Yeah, I, yeah, I can, I can really resonate with that. And um, I, I actually really understand what you mean. And, and we forget that sometimes. Thank you. Thank you so much. I think that was amazing. Um, and I feel very, very privileged to have had this conversation with you and that you chose to have this conversation with me. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts and come find me over in Hindsight Conversations on Twitter and Instagram. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.